So this evening, for the quote of the day, I will uh, read this out. I find it has something to say about what I want to talk tonight, which is creative engagement. So again, this is a quote from uh, the Buddha, and he's talking to his uh, son, uh, who has become a monk, about practice. Try to be like water, Rahula. When people wash away these things with water, for that water is not ashamed, humiliated, or disgusted. Try to be like fire, Rahula. When fire burns these things, for that fire is not ashamed, humiliated, or disgusted. Try to be like space, Rahula. For by so doing, when agreeable or disagreeable contact arise, they will not invade your heart and stay there. For space has no standing place of its own. So in a way, here I think the Buddha is talking about, in a way, encountering things, being in contact with things in a different way. So he says, when people wash away things with water, so generally people wash away things which are dirty with water so that they become clean. But the water which becomes in a way dirty from the, thing, from the dirt, it's not humiliated, it's not a shame, it's not disgusted by the dirt. It just conduits the dirt and the dirt goes. So in that it's kind of being in contact with something, engaging with it, not being away apart from it, but really kind of, you know, being in the middle of it, but not grasping at it, not being colored by it. Try to be like fire. When fire burns this thing, that fire is not a shame, humiliated or disgusting. So again, if you throw very dirty thing in the fire to be burnt, the fire in a way burns them, does the job, but is not colored, is not kind of uh, bothered about that contact. Try to be like space, because when agreeable or disagreeable contacts arise, they will not invade your heart and stay there. So he's not saying there should not be contact. There is contact. This is being alive, being in contact with things, but they will not invade your heart and stay there for space has no standing place of its own. So basically there is no place where anything can stick. So I think the Buddha here is you know, showing us an image of what I would call creative engagement. And in terms of the walking meditation, I think we can a little, as I said, in the discussion play with that element, that we walking in meditation, and so in a way we can start with just being aware of the body, the feet of the ground, the movement, and then we look, we come into contact with what we see. We see the bird, we see the grasses, we might see a car passing by or somebody, and in a way, can we see things? Can we really see them really clearly? And in a way, don't do anything with it. I mean, of course, if you are at home, you see a bus, you want to take it, you do something, you get on the bus. But in a way, here, I think it's kind of like a kind of a, 
um, laboratory where we can really explore things. And then in a way to see, I see a color, what do I do? Hmm, I like that yellow. Or do I just see the yellow as it is? Do I see a plant, maybe a beautiful plant? There is a beautiful garden. Do we just appreciate, enjoy the beauty of the flower? Or do we go, hmm, I really like that plant. Hmm, wouldn't it be nice to have it in my garden? Where could I get it? What's the name of it? Where could I put it? And then you're not with the beauty of the plant or the flower anymore. You are, again, in abstraction. You are in the future of it. So we need to play, to see. We come into contact through seeing things. And this is an experience we have also with people. As we are in the retreat here, we see people or we see the food. And what do we do? What do we do when we see somebody? Hmm, they're okay. Oh, they're a bit weird. And then from that often, we kind of start in huge story about the people, about the person. And can we just see the person? Can we just see the life? I remember once I was in, um, in uh, Sweden and I was teaching long ago in Sweden. And there was, I was in this kind of like a little center, kind of like a therapeutic center. And I did not understand any Swedish or anything. And there were three rooms with three different names, one common name and also different words. And from just seeing that, these same words and different words together, I started this huge story about that this, this center must be organized by three sisters, and it was their room where they did it, massage, and was it nice that they worked together, da, da, da. Until I asked, what does it mean? And it meant the blue room, the yellow room, and the pink room. <laughs> and so that's what, I, I mean, imagination is good, but sometimes we have to see. What do we do? We see something and then we just see the thing itself. Do we ask about it or we do we go in kind of all kind of story? Or if we don't like something, again, what do we do? So we're kind of, kind of exploring that uh, when we walk, uh, in the walking meditation, but also whatever we encounter through the visual sight, I think can be interesting on retreat. So what I wanted to, to look at today is, in a way, uh, looking a little uh, first at the meditation. That, you know, yesterday I was talking of cultivation and effect. And to, for me, one of the main effects of the meditation actually is a very subtle one that we're not generally very aware of. And it's what I would call the effect. It's kind of like you sit, you might not have what you call a good sitting. You are maybe distracted or sleepy or whatever. But at the end of it, you feel a little differently generally. There is like a certain, a certain releasing, a certain peace, I would nearly say, a certain little ease that has been developed just trying to do the meditation. And that's why to me the cultivation is so important. The cultivation is not the fact that you have a fantastic meditation, 
but is the fact that you try to meditate, that you try to come back to the breath, to the body, you try to be aware, and just sitting there in the posture, just trying this exercise actually has an effect. And to me, this is what really is one of the main points of the meditation. That when you do it, and it's not very easy, and you think, but what am I doing this for? It's hard work, as somebody was saying. But actually, it works. It's kind of like it seeps through us. It helps us to release our grasp, to release our holding. And then there is a little that releasing. And when I was in Korea, where I used to, to meditate quite a lot, and this was one experience I had very early on, and I realized that effect. And I was sitting in meditation for once I was all on my own, so nobody was, in a way, being there to check that I was there or not. I was on my own sitting 10 hours a day, 15 minutes, 5 zero, and 10 minutes walking. And this was a bad day. I was sitting, I was trying to do the meditation, and it did not work. I was so distracted, and I thought, really, this is not working. It would be better to do something useful, like read a Dharma book. So I stood up, because nobody was there. I stood up, and then I opened a Dharma book, and I realized I could not read it, actually, because my mind even though he looked distracted, had quieted down in such a way that there was this feeling of ease, of release. And I did not want to force it to read a text, to try to understand it. Because this kind of ease, this kind of peace, this kind of spaciousness had been created. And that's when I realized that what I would call the subtle underneath effect of kind of justice releasing which in a way brings me to what I would call is in a way the main point of the meditation is that of dissolving over time the grasping, the holding, the fixing so that it can be transformed in what I call creative engagement. So that when we have contact through our senses then instead of grasping and holding and fixing, actually there is this creative engagement upon contact, upon feeling, not only with our inner condition, but also with our outer condition. And to me, this in a way is the main point of meditation. So just to, um, to show you, just to give you a little example of what happens when we generally come in contact with something. Generally, when we come in contact with something, generally, so let's say this, I come into contact with it, and generally there is an identification. I am seeing this, it is mine, I am holding it, and generally through that identification, it is my problem, then we kind of come into contact and then we stick and we hold. Generally, there is kind of this kind of grasping and identifying comes together. This is mine, I hold it. 
I come into contact, I hold. And then if I do this, if I hold on to something in this way for a certain time, then two things happen. The first one is I get a cramp in the arm. And I think that's where a lot of our tension, of our suffering, comes from our holding like this. If there is tension of suffering, generally I would say there is some grasping, there is some identifying. But the worst thing is that when I do this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So in a way, I am stuck to what I am grasping at. And to me, this is what is the most painful with that grasping, that identifying upon contact, is that it reduces our potential. Because as long as I grasp at this, I cannot use my hand in any way. And to me, the, the meditation process is a process of releasing. So that by releasing, a space in a way is created and there can be movement and there can be freedom. I can use a thing or I can leave it. And that's why I think it's, it's not so much about that one day we will not grasp anymore at all. I think one has to be careful there. Because I think this grasping, this identifying is a survival mechanism. If I don't you know, do this for my being, nobody is going to do it for me. So we're not trying to eradicate grasping or identifying, but we're trying to diminish the percentage from maybe 95% to 50%. And so in a way, so that when we encounter things, there is not this immediate me, mine. I want this flower for myself. This is my problem. This is a terrible problem. Generally, there is this. Because when we hold, this is what, the, the, the two things that happen. We come into contact, we grasp, we hold. Then we solidify around what we hold. So in a way, we limit ourselves to what we hold, and then we magnify it. And that's why I have a problem. This is my problem. This is a terrible problem. It will last forever. This is generally what happens when we grasp. We limit ourselves and we magnify what we grasp at. And then it's very hard to creatively engage. Because what can you do with always? You're stuck. Instead of looking, what is a contact? What is a condition? What is my possibility? What is my potential in this moment? How can I creatively engage? And that's why I think it's interesting to look at at the, at the two things that seems to come together with grasping, with holding, with fixing, is a certain, one is proliferation, abstraction. You come into contact, you see something, and then you proliferate around it, and you become very abstract, like the flower and the garden, and then you're not with the beauty of it anymore. You are kind of in abstraction. Of course, you can decide to have that flower in your garden. But to see that as long as you do this, when you look at it, you're really not there anymore. And then generally you proliferate. You kind of go into more and more abstraction. And also what we can do is exaggeration. That when we grasp, we magnify and often we exaggerate. Especially 
For example, we think which are negative. This is terrible. This is awful. Etc., etc. And then you kind of make it even bigger than it is. Instead, oh, this happened like me. The other morning, I wake up and I see that I have banged the, the table. I have uh, the f- little flower pot has turned over on my paper and everything is wet and soggy. And sure, it's not fun. And at the same time, I don't say, this is so terrible, I am awful, the table is terrible, the flower pot is terrible. Da, 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 da. I just, oh, I did this. You know, I'll push the table not to do it in the future. I put the pot somewhere else. I take all the wet paper and I dry them. And it's finished. But if I had kind of, this is so awful, this is so terrible, shh, I would have spent a long more time on it trying to find a culprit, myself, other, etc. Instead of, okay, this has happened, I have to do something about it. I do it, and then I move on to the next thing. So to see that when we grasp, when we hold in that way, then generally it limits us, and it really, in a way, kind of magnifies the thing. So to be aware of this, ah, am I proliferating? Am I exaggerating? What can I be really with what is going on now? And that's why I don't, I prefer to use creative engagement instead of non-grasping or non-attachment. This is a word I would not use because I think we have very bad association with non-attachment, which then become detachment, which then become indifference and then kind of make this idea that we, once we're really equanimous, we're going to float and nothing is going to bother us. Even the Buddha, you know, had, uh, you know, he was ill, he had headache, and there is this very interesting thing toward the end of his life when he's very ill and uh, somebody is asking about how he is and he said, it's very painful. It's so painful that the only way I can deal with the pain is actually to concentrate and go into deep concentration state and then I don't feel the pain in such an intense way. So it's obvious that he did not grasp at it, but he still felt the pain. But the meditation helped him to not kind of magnify it, to just be with it and then to kind of be with it in a different way. So what I like to look at now is in a way looking at creative engagement in terms of maybe what you have experienced in the last two days. That what, what kind of contact have you had? I would say you had contact with thought, <coughs> contact with feelings, contact with sensations. And to look at that, to me, this is very important. The meditation can help us. For me, thinking is not a problem when you meditate. Because I think thinking is information. What do we think about? I think this is, before we want to work with our mind, with our thought, we really need to know what is going on in our mind. Because a lot of the time, we have a thought, but we grasp it, we caught in it so fast, we identify with it so fast, that actually, we don't really know what we are thinking. We don't even really know the language we are using when we are thinking. And I think the meditation can help us to see, oh, that's what I was thinking, that's what I was telling myself, 
And this is the language I was using. And then you can try to see, I mean, do I need to think this right now? To me, this is a little the choice meditation can give us. Because if you look at your thought, and you might have noticed that possibly in meditation over the last two days, very unlikely that you had many original thoughts. And very likely you had them before. And very likely they were fairly repetitive. And you go round and round often on the same thing with just a few little kind of different bits of it. And I think the meditation can help us to see, well, I have thought this five times. Do I need to think it ten more times? Or could I take a little break, a little holiday from that one's train of thought? And to see I don't really need to think that right now. But it doesn't mean that I will not think of anything. I think what the meditation can help us is to see if we are thinking in a creative way or not. And to me, this is an important point. We have a mind, we have a brain, which is amazing. And what do we do with it? And often, it's, I mean, as the Buddha said, it's a little mean, it's a little trivial, what we go on and on about. Sometimes it's important, I recognize. And so to me, what the meditation has helped me in terms of daily life, is when I have something of my mind that I have to deal with, that I have to think about, then I can see what I'm doing with it. Once I had a little kind of problem with somebody and I, was, I lost it and I was very angry and I said it. It doesn't happen often these days, but that time I was so frustrated. I exploded and then it passed quite quickly and then I thought I have to to excuse myself, but I was not there anymore, so I wanted to send an email. So I started to think of the email I would send to apologize. First round, I was apologetic but aggressive. Second round, apologetic, a little less aggressive. Fourth, third round, less aggressive. Fourth round, that's the way to do it. Apologetic but firm. Yes, that's the way to go. <laughs> so, and then I let it be. I f- felt I was, you know, getting to the right attitude, the right formulation. Then I let it be because I was in bed five o'clock in the morning and I thought, now this is enough. I don't need to think this anymore. And then later, two hours later, I got up at breakfast and I wrote the email, improved a little on it, and I sent it. And then the response was quite friendly too. But I don't do that if I see that I have something to think about and the first round is nasty, the next one is nastier, and the third is getting worse. And then I see there is no point. You know, this, this is not going into improving, this is not creative, I'm not going anywhere with this. And then generally I just leave it. I just leave it. And then just let it bubble in me in a different way. And then I might look at it again see, can I be creative with this? Can I move with this in a creative way or not? And it's the same with when we sit in meditation and sometimes you have fantastic idea. I agree, it happens to me too. Uh, it used to happen to me more before because I used, because I'm a writer, 
And I used to sit in meditation and I used to have this wonderful idea for my books. And I said, yes, this is such a great idea. This is wonderful. And I would go around and run. Yes, great, 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 great. Yes, fantastic. And then I would write it down. Then I would leave it. And then I would generally never use it. (laughs) Because actually those great ideas were not actually what I would call really great ideas. They were actually more distracting, looking like great ideas to pass the time. And those did not work. They were not creative enough. It was kind of more like kind of like a enthralling myself. But then when I have a good idea, ah, I can see it. Oh yeah, that's a new one. That's a good one. And then I let it be. Because often we have a great idea and then we have to remember that great idea then you get into the repetition. you know. And then I don't think it's creative at all. And I feel if you have a great idea once, you will have it again. Otherwise it really was not such a great idea. You know, it did not really pierce through the whole being. So in a way to see, you know, we are sitting here, we have a thought come up. And so in a way, how can I be creatively engaged with it? To me this, and I think the meditation, the, 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 the focusing, the looking deeply is not going to stop the thinking, but it's going to help us to see, do I need to think this through? Or maybe I don't need to do it right now. And then I can come back to the breath, I can come back to the body and just cultivate stability and openness. And then later, that creative potential can go back to the idea. But of course, if you have a theme, like if there is a theme in your life, something that really is kind of, you know, a choice to make or something that comes back again and again, then what I would suggest is to do meditative, creative thinking once a day. Once a day, that's a, that's a focus. You just focus on that theme. But you, the vipassana, you, you look at it differently. You try not to repeat the same story about it. You try to think something you never thought before about it. Or how would somebody else think about it? So try to be creative with the theme. And then you let it be. And then the next day you can take it up again for 30 minutes. So you address it, but in a more creative way than just kind of repeating and trying to find a solution which will not not come when you're kind of tight with it. When you're grasping at the thought, generally the creativity won't come. And once I had this um, wonderful experience on a retreat some years ago, toward the end of the retreat... Somebody came to me and said, oh, I am really, and she was, the person was crying and really upset. And, and she wanted two different things. She had two different thoughts. One, I want to continue to be on this retreat till the end. I want to stay until tomorrow to finish the retreat with everybody, talk together, share together. And the other thought was, I need to go back home because there is this very special anniversary. I have to be there. And so she was torn. She kept thinking, you know, I want to do this. No, I must do this. Yes, I want to do this. So it was kind of like she was grasping at one, grasping at the other. 
and she could not find a way out. So she came to see me, we talked about it, I said, well, you can stay, you can go, you know. I mean, I could not tell her what to do. I could just kind of give her the space that, you know, there was different possibility and, you know, she was free to go, to stay, to, and to find any other solution she might come up with. So she left, and then I did not see her. So I thought, oh, she's gone. She took first solution. Then the next morning I saw her, so, oh, she stayed. She must have taken the second solution. And later I asked her, she said, oh, no, after I talked to you, suddenly I just sat there. I was just quiet, just trying to be open to, you know, to be creative. And suddenly she realized, I can stay till the, you know, the last, the, the talk in the evening. Then I can go home. It was only 10 minutes away. I can wake up with my family, celebrate the anniversary, be back for breakfast, and be with the end of the retreat. And suddenly it was so obvious when before she could not have that creative moment because she was grasping one, the next. And so to me, this is also what the meditation can help us, to create space. So that actually by coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, we're not stopping the thought. But we are creative a space that actually a more creative thought can happen, either at that time or either later on. Then you can also have feelings. You know, you can be sitting in meditation and you come into contact with a feeling. It could be a feeling of joy, it could be a feeling of peace, it could be a feeling of sadness, it could be a feeling of anger. And again, if it's not too intense, because this is what we have to be careful in meditation. When we say to be aware, we have to be careful that what's the level of what we come in contact with. If the level is light, if you have a light thought, a light feelings, then it's easy to be aware of. If you have just a kind of a, a, a thought or a feeling, well, just a little more kind of, you know, habitual, you can recognize them, but they're not too strong, then again, you can be aware of it and generally you can work with them. But if they're very intense, really kind of really intense, then I would not recommend to focus on them, because if you focus on them, generally they will be even more intense. You would need to be really, really stable and open to really be able to just see them and in that moment creatively engage with them so that they can really dissipate, the energy can dissipate. So that's why I would say to be careful. If it's very intense, I would say generally just come back to the breath, to the body, to whatever helps you. But if they lied, or they're just a little habitual, then it becomes interesting to kind of actually use the meditation not to resolve the feeling or the sensation or the thought, but to be with it in a different way, to creatively engage with it in the experience, not in the story of the feeling. Because often we have a feeling and straight away we go into the story of the feeling, which then get connected to story in the past and then story in the future. And actually we're not anymore with the feeling we feel in the body. 
in this moment. And so to notice if there is not much feeling, just experience not having any strong feeling. Again, back to this, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, peaceful, contentment, just being here at ease. But if you feel something which might be a little irritation or even sleepiness is interesting, when you feel a little heavy and then you want to feel brighter, but just to be with that, how does it feel to feel a little kind of little kind of uh, sluggish, a little heavy, and to see how it's there and then it's gone. The same with the feeling of irritation or the feeling of sadness if we don't do anything with it but just observe it, know it, and even not name it. To me, that's what is interesting. To not name the feeling, to just be with the feeling Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it agitated? How does it really feel in the body? And I think then it helps us to know much better what we feel. And then after that, creatively engage with our feelings, which are very natural, which are very human. To feel sad, to feel angry, it's normal. There is nothing wrong with having feeling. But what do we do? What do we do when we grasp at them, which then often make them become disturbing emotions? And then it's very hard to creatively engage with ourselves or with the situation. I had an an experience like that when uh, I went to, to South Africa, I go, we go generally to, to teach there time to time. And we generally nowadays, we've been there many times, so we kind of try to help out with the situation, which is quite bad with uh, AIDS and with the orphans. And this is uh, in uh, near the Zulu villages, which are really, I mean, comp- they really have very little help, etc., etc., and so friends of ours have organized things from the Buddhist center and things like that. And so we kind of help the school, help the orphans and things. And then once we were asked to go to a hut uh, in the aim that if we saw the people in the hut, we would do something for them. So off we go to see the family. And we see this hut. And it's the worst hut I ever saw. There is nothing nothing, nothing, and just kind of a broken pot. And there was this woman looking so depressed, so helpless, and then there was these two children, ragamuffin, with, looking full of scabies. And, and I was sitting there, and I was, wow, I was really kind of, you know, contact, you know, real poverty, real helplessness, because they had no way to earn any money in any way. The father was dead, the daughter had run away, etc., etc., and this was the grandmother. And they were just begging in this poor village. So I was sitting there, and in a way I was feeling the weight of the, the suffering, the helplessness. And I was very sad. I was very sad. And of course, we said, yes, of course we will help this family, and... And in the course of our time, you know, they, 
because we helped them, the grandmother became better and the little two girls, things became better. Now they're really in a good shape and etc. etc. But what was interesting for me that for the next 15 days, I felt sad. I really could feel this sadness within myself. The sadness of that, of that situation the sadness of not being, of only being able to help them and, and being aware there are so many other families in that situation and being aware that's the only one I can help. And so there was this sadness. And at the same time, the sadness coexisted with other feelings I had as I was teaching the retreat, as I was, you know, admiring the bird and the flowers and meeting people. And I could time to time say, yeah, I am sad. And at the same time, I was not disturbed by it. It did not uh, overwhelm me because of the meditation. So there was this feeling of compassion. There was this feeling of sadness. But I did not grasp at it. I did not identify with it. And so I was able to have it. And so to me, this is what the meditation can help us to do, is not not to have the feeling, but to have the feeling, to be aware of it, to act upon it, in this case, helping them, but not to be overwhelmed, not to be caught, not to be destabilized, in such a way that in a way, sometimes one can become paralyzed by it. And then there is sensations. We, I mean, we have some sensation. You come into contact with sensation in the body. You might have experienced this in the meditation. And what is interesting there, with contact with sensation, as we sit in meditation, is to see that the way we are with the pain, with the discomfort, depends on our state of mind. Let me explain. And, and with the same pain, with the same discomfort, with the same pain, if you are totally distracted, let's say you are totally gone into a daydream, which is one of the favorite activity in meditation. This is one, something I used to do a lot when I was in Korea at the beginning. Daydream for hours and end. My daydream was that I would go to a hermitage, I would, be awake, I would meditate hard, I would be awake and I would save everybody. I was dreaming about meditation and not meditating. So it's a very enjoyable activity. And generally if you daydream, the, I mean the time passed so fast because it's so enjoyable. You're not here, you are really somewhere else. And then you might have some pain, but I mean you're not present. You're not present to the body, so... It passed very quickly. Or you are very concentrated. You see, you're really present. You, and then you have the pain. But because you don't grasp at it, you don't identify with it. It's pain. It has a reason. You're aware of its kind of uh, impermanent nature, its conditioned nature. So you feel it. It's not comfortable, but you can be with it. Because you're not exaggerating it. You're not adding anything to it. It's just there. And it's there within a spacious awareness, a kind of more experience in this moment. 
But generally, we are actually in the middle, half distracted and half concentrated, and then we're very aware, I have a pain in the knee, I have a pain in the back. And so in a way, to me, with the sensation, with contact, to see, it doesn't mean that you cannot move, it doesn't mean you cannot sit on a chair, but to explore, to explore how to be with the sensation, sensation of pleasure or sensation of pain. How can I be with this? I remember I was doing a month-long uh, silent retreat with all the group. We were just all retreating together, all meditating. And this was in America. And I had decided to really do a really... I was very enthusiastic about this retreat and I wanted to really meditate a lot. You know, get up at five o'clock in the morning and really sit all day, and etc. I was really fired up to do lots of meditation. But before I went to sit, I wanted to have a shower. And so at five o'clock, I tried to have a shower and it was cold. And I'm very, I get cold very easily. So I kind of, that was a bit of my problem. So I decided, okay, five o'clock, there is no hot water. I'll have my shower later. I'll meditate still dirty. It's okay. So then next time I go to, you know, have a shower at eight o'clock. After for about five days having this kind of very kind of coolish shower. And I go into the shower and the hot water comes in and I go under the shower and I think, oh, this is so nice. It was so good, this hot water. And I could see that if I grasped at that feeling of this is so nice, this is so pleasant, finally hot water. I could have, you know, we wanted to stay there for an hour, which wouldn't have been so ecological, and I would have come out all wrinkled. I thought, no, ten, you know, five minutes is enough, and then I got out. But again, it's to see what do we do? You know, it's pleasant. Generally, we want it to continue. It's unpleasant. We don't want it. But by not wanting it, we actually add to it. Instead of kind of really seeing, how can I be with this? Once I was uh, sitting, doing a retreat teaching, and I had bad sciatica. I think it may be the worst I ever had it on a retreat. <coughs> really bad. I sit, and I was going to, supposed to sit for 30 minutes to ring the bell. After 30 minutes, and I sit and my leg is on fire, on fire. It's kind of throbbing. It's, it was so painful. And I thought, if I grasp at this, this is like every second is going to feel like a year. These 30 minutes are going to be endless. And so instead, I decided to creatively engage with the pain. So I just went inside the pain. I went inside the leg and it was throbbing, it was flashing. I'd never been so concentrated in my life. And the time went so fast, just being so present to what was going on there, so present. And then after 30 minutes, I rang the bell and I went to take some painkiller. So it doesn't mean, the creative engagement doesn't mean to just be there. It also, you know, what is the best thing to do in this situation, which in my case was to go and take some painkiller to really kind of make the thing go down. 
So in a way, during our time here, trying to see, again, not judging him, trying to see how can I creatively engage when I come into contact with thoughts, when I come into contact with feelings, with sensation, with what I see, with what I hear. So that's what I wanted to say today. There might be just a little time for just one or two questions, if there are. Space. I'm sorry. It's my uh, it's my pronunciation. So I will repeat it. Try to be like space, Raula. For by doing so, when agreeable or disagreeable contacts arise, they will not invade your heart and stay there. For space has no standing place of its own. And this comes from Majimanikaya 62. To quote from that sutta there. Yes. I think I just want to clarify what you've said. I think I've had this idea that meditation is constantly watching thoughts go, you know, like a cloud. And in a way, I think you're saying that it sort of goes a bit to your point too that um, you don't just let them go, especially if you've had one a thousand times, you, you can actually engage with it. That's really what you're saying. Well, I, I, I say that. What we have to be careful is not to kind of go into either psychological analysis or scientific analysis. So it's not why am I thinking this, but more what am I thinking and what is the language in which I am saying it. And I think that is very interesting. So in a way to see, sometimes you know, the thoughts are very light and it's kind of just pass by. So you can't really say what it was. And sometimes you can say, hmm, what am I saying to myself? I am, say, am I saying something nice? Am I saying something negative? You know, and then, wow, you know, is this true? So yes, personally, I think it's interesting. Like me, when finally I was sitting in meditation in Korea and finally I realized I was daydreaming. Because I did not realize, and then I realized I'm daydreaming about meditation. That's not meditation. Or when uh, I suddenly realized I was, one of my distractions was thinking of um, repairing clothes, changing my clothes in some way. So that went, ah, clothes repairing. Now what I can see is luggage. Because I travel a lot. I can see, ah, luggage. But then when I start thinking about the luggage I'm going to put in my suitcase when I go to Korea in November, I think, hmm. Maybe I don't need to do this right now. But it just depends. You know, sometimes you kind of see, hmm, yeah, what is going on? So, no, yes, to let them, you know, to let them go. But sometimes I think information-wise, it can be quite interesting to just see, hmm, what was that? And then come back. Yeah? Is the coming back during the same meditation or do you kind of bookmark it and come back? If you have a, a good idea or a creative 
Okay, creative idea. I think this you can do different things with it. You have a creative idea, or you see, or even just have an insight. It's like, you know, you suddenly see something you've never seen before, or you experience something you never experienced before. So in a way, you have to make sense of it. You know, you kind of experience something, what's that? Once I was sitting in meditation, and suddenly I felt my heart open. I was like, really? And then I tried to put a name to it. And what came up at that moment was, I have no problem with nobody. And then I looked at people I had little trouble with. Even with them, I had no problem. <laughs> so I thought, yeah. Hmm. That's what it feels like to really open your heart. So in a way, you, you have an experience or you see something or you have a creative thought. So the thing is to go with it, I would say, as long as it's creative. But notice when it's turned from creative to repeat and to remember. This, I think, is what then it's not anymore. And then I would say just generally come back to the breath, come back to the body. And then if it's a good one, you will remember it. And then when you go out, you can go and write it down because then you don't have to remember to remember. <laughs> that I would recommend. Yeah. You say when you have very strong feelings, sometimes the best thing to do is just move it away, go back to the breath. And when it comes, try to resolve. But if the level of that feeling, I will take Anna for example, it's always the same. I think you have to see that with anger, the thing is, it's fire. Anger is fire. Anger is energy. It's, it's the opposite of sadness, which generally takes you into the poor me syndrome. It's very different energy. Kind of sadness is more kind of low energy. Anger is very strong energy. So in a way, what I'm saying, it depends on your condition. It really depends on your condition. You see, sometimes I would say, it might be best for you to go running, to just go running, or to just go dancing, you know? Or sometimes, you see, it's so, it's so powerful, you know? You could just try to sit and just be with that and not do anything, just be with that. How does it feel to be angry? I had a friend, and that's what he did. I mean, I don't recommend it, but that's what he did. Because he, he was a meditator, and then he stopped being a monk. He was a monk for seven years, and then he stopped being a monk, and then he became a PR. And he became a PR for somebody really difficult, who used to lie, and very difficult. And what he used to do is that he, she would phone and tell him some really big lie. And then he would put the thing down, and he would be so upset, and he would increase, he did the opposite, he would increase his upsetness, so that he could really see how it felt to really be angry. And then he would say, okay, let it go. And he could do that. I mean, I don't many, know many people who can do that. So I think in a way, all of us have to find creative ways to work with what is going on. For me, 
I would say my breakthrough with anger was when I saw I was very angry after a, what I would call a Buddhist argument where you don't shout but you are very seizing underneath. <laughs> so I was, you know, in the kitchen cutting my carrots because I was cooking for a conference and suddenly I saw I was I was like that. And I, I saw, I went inside the body. That's why for me, it's very important to go inside. I went inside the body and I could feel my body going. And I realized in that moment, I was doing this to myself. And this was painful. And in that seeing, it just went. Just the seeing of it, it just went. And then I looked into my mind. What was I doing there? And I was going, I am right. She's wrong. I am right. She's wrong. And then I look at that and I thought, she must be doing the same but in the opposite way. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny. And again, it went. And so I say, sometimes you can just look at it. If the conditions are good, you're not too tired, you're not too stressed, you're relatively stable and open, then you can look at it. And in the looking of it, you learn something. And so either it might go or it might be less intense. But we have to accept that in a way the feeling has to go through us. And, and, and in a way to, to try to make it so the feeling doesn't make us, for example, anger, which is very dangerous because you can you know, be aggressive, go and hit somebody or whatever. So kind of trying to kind of, in a way, hold it in such a way that it goes through us, but it does not, in a way, make us cause more suffering. Or by kind of creatively engaged with, with it, kind of, in a way, taking its root out. I am right. Which, that's the root of anger a lot of the time. So to see, oh, you can have uh, what I would call rightful anger. And I saw that in action. And I was really amazed. I thought it was so beautiful. Uh, one of my heroes in France, which finally I saw on stage, is called L'Abbé Pierre. He's dead now. He was a, a monk, a Catholic monk. And he was at a peace conference where the Dalai Lama was interface. Everybody was very peaceful, talking about peace, you know, very peaceful. And suddenly this little guy comes on the stage and he says, I am angry. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. Different discourse here. And he said, I am angry at poverty. And that anger at poverty made him do something about it. It did not overwhelm him. It did not destabilize him. It made me do really something, create this whole thing about for homeless people. And he was really I mean, one of the great person in France. And so to me, that showed me something. That the feeling itself, anger is not so much the problem. In a way, it's what is around it. Where does it come from? What is the condition? What do we do with it? And then we have to stop here because uh, you need to walk a little. So, walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.